this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to a special family edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. In all of our families, there are recipes that become tradition. And over the years, that tradition becomes synonymous with love and memory. So here at Biscuits and Jam, we've gone through our favorite episodes and picked out a few clips, some of which you haven't heard yet, where our guests share their own stories of what family means to them. To kick things off, here's the Empress of Soul, Gladys Knight, talking about how there was always music in her kitchen. Is it fair to say that you love to cook? I love to cook. I've been cooking, let's see, since I was uh, six years old. Wow, you got an early start. I do. I come from a family where all the ladies in my family used to come together, and they'd just be having so much fun in the kitchen, and one of them would make this this particular recipe, and somebody else would be doing something else, and they'd just, ooh, it'd be so good, too. Smelling up the whole house is great. And so that's when I started, and I was always in there in the way <laughs> at six years old. <laughs> But they started, rather than chastising me, they started teaching me. And uh, I love that. I was just fascinated. And when it was done and they called everybody in to eat, the food was amazing. And it just kept me going. And when I got uh, eight, my mom bought me a cookbook. They had a children's cookbook. And I was so excited, so I started cooking out of that cookbook. Very simple things like eggs or making a special toast or making a little soup or whatever. You know, something something very plain. And uh, that's how I started cooking. And I was so amazed by these ladies in my family, and they just taught us how to cook. So there was a, there were a lot more than uh, just your mom cooking. You had did you have aunts and uncles, cousins? All of them. Let me tell you something <laughs> that, that people don't pick up on these days. Men are great cooks. All my uncles and my cousin, my male cousins and, and nephews, they came to cook too. And on top of that, we'd all be singing. We had enough people in there cooking to have a choir. <laughs> and all the time, I can remember that after we ate, we sang. And I could hear my mom and my aunties and stuff in the kitchen because their kitchen, like, overlooked the driveway where we would play. It was just really a backyard with cement, you know. They would have the kitchen window up, and we could hear them singing. All my, all my folks could sing, my mom, my aunties, my uncles, you know, and my cousins. It was, it was like that. Chidi Kumar, a chef in North Carolina who was a James Beard Award finalist this year, also learned a love of cooking from her mother. But as she explained to me, it went beyond just creating a meal. 
It was also the way she and her mother could truly communicate. My mom had also a very fractured childhood, much more traumatic than mine. She was a child in what is now Pakistan, and her family is Hindu. So they were basically forced to leave, and so she lost her parents and her brother in that migration a couple of million people died, actually, in the space of about a year in that transfer. This is during the partition. This is the partition, yeah, 1947. Yeah. Um, so the thing that she held on to also was food memories. And I think that was like the language that she had to connect to her mother and to her childhood. And those times were all wrapped around the village square, or the town square had a, a grain mill and, you know, a tandoor oven and the aunties that would teach her certain things and the Muslim aunties that would teach her other things. And so the food Ritual was so much of a part of what she recalled of her childhood. So um, I think that when she had kids, and I'm not, you know, if she was maybe born now, I'm not sure if she would have chosen to have children. I think that was a really hard thing for her to do. I think the thing that she knew how to impart was food memory and food culture. Um, when we moved to the U.S., I think she wasn't really trying to keep us isolated in this Indian bubble. She knew that her young kids were going to become American. She never like said, you can't listen to Western music and you know, you can't dress like this or whatever. But the food part was the thing that I think she chose was this sort of innocuous ambassador of our culture into our soul. And she did that knowingly and unknowingly. I think a part of it was just like she knew how important it was as a scientist to be like, you know, have good nutrition and not eat junk food and not eat frozen food and all that stuff. But it was also this like, we're not going to put up a battle or a fight if the food is delicious. And even though there were times when we were like, can we just please have spaghetti and pizza like normal people? Um, and we did do that sometimes, but she would have to make it in her own way. So, you know, uh, <laughs> But it was like this language. And I think that, you know, it provided a time to meditate and connect with her own mother and then pass that memory unspoken on because there was so much trauma in it, you know, um, that I think it was a cloak of passage, I guess, you know, that was seemingly very innocuous and gentle and flavorful, but still really patient and deliberate. She was going through, I think, what is probably PTSD of being displaced again. She was severely depressed, and it was like a way of me kind of reaching her. She made something that she loves to make, and I loved to eat. So it was this connection that I could have with her. The way our favorite recipes are made step by step can be as much of a family tradition as the meals themselves. So on our very first episode of Biscuits and Jam, it was great to hear country singer Jake Owen describe how his own family's recipes will continue to live on for generations. He also shared with me a touching story about bringing his dad on the golfing trip of a lifetime. Our family is, is really large. We have a large family, but we, we were just all on Zoom the other night like this. There was 40 of us 
And uh, I was hosting a game show for everyone. And I was doing all the sounds and everything. I had everything configured to where when I started the game show, I had the like, like music and dings and buzzers. And anyways, we had everybody on there. And it goes to show you how much we all miss each other. And, and I think that is a Southern trend of like families being together, right? My cousin Carrie put together for Christmas a few years ago. She called around to everybody in the family um, and then she got my grandmother to give not only her recipes, but all of her mother's recipes. And my cousin made everyone for Christmas an Owen family cookbook with everyone's classic recipes. And so I have that. So if you guys are interested in any special, unique Owen family recipe, uh, we don't give those out a lot, you know, but I, I, I keep Southern living in high regard. So I, I'll sneak you guys a famous Owen recipe. What I do find interesting, too, that I think is a great quick story is that because my dad was interested in golf, and he should have played professionally, really, he's that great. Um, He wanted that for me so bad. I think my dad wanted to one day just walk the fairways of Augusta National with me while I played in the Masters or whatever, because that was going to be our only way there, you know, to Augusta National. And uh, fast forward, you know, 10 years after I moved to Nashville, I played a radio show for the kind people of Augusta. The guy there told me, he's like, hey, Jake, I know you're a big golfer. He said, uh, I promise you one day I'm going to get you on Augusta National. And I said, no way. I said, well, listen, if that ever happens, the only way that I'll play is with my dad. And he goes, all right, well, if I can make that happen, I'll let you know. So it was like 2013 or 14. I get a call. It was December 22nd. And uh, my buddy said, hey, go ahead and get your bags packed and meet me tomorrow over here in Augusta because we're going to play around a golf in Augusta. You think you can get your dad up here? And so I called my dad. I said, he answered the phone and I said, dad, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just up here at work. You know what I'm doing? I said, well, you need to go ahead and head home and pack your bags and get your golf clubs because we're playing Augusta National tomorrow. And he's like, you're kidding me. And I said, nope. And so he went home, packed his bags, got on a plane, flew to Atlanta, drove up and met me in Augusta the next day. And the two of us played Augusta National together. And I watched my dad tear up walking down the first fairway. And um, man, it's like, it's kind of wild to think about that because the one thing, which was golf, that you would have thought would have brought my dad and I together to Augusta is not at all what happened. The one thing that my dad could have never taught me how to do that I chased because I believed in it, which was music is what brought my dad and I to Augusta. And, uh, I can't tell that story enough because I think it's really important for kids out there to know that always respect your parents always listen to them and what they say, but have a confidence to what you believe in as a kid too. Because if you have a dream, like anything is possible, not just fulfilling your dreams, but man, quite frankly, I fulfilled my dad's dream of playing Augusta national by chasing a dream that I wanted to fulfill. And I think sometimes people don't realize that you can fulfill a lot of people's dreams outside of your own by just being confident and and chasing something you believe in. Moving now from the fairway to the stage, 
Brett Eldred spoke with me about which family member is still with him in spirit at every one of his concerts, even though he passed away years ago. And later, Brett reveals how his grandmother's battle with Alzheimer's inspired one of his biggest hits. So Brett, were you close with your grandfather? Very, very close. He was, he was, I would say he was my best friend. He lived a full life. He lived till I think he was 85 and, and, you know, growing up, he had a DX station. So he had a gas station and he, my dad and all my uncles worked at the gas station and uh, with him and, you know, the old school go out to the pump and you have a attendant, which happened to be him or my dad or my uncles. And they, when they were in high school and throughout their life as kids, would uh, fill up the cars, and it was Shirley's D. His name was Shirley, and uh, which was very unique in itself. It was kind of like a boy named Sue, you know? And uh, he just had all these amazing stories. He was a big-time life storyteller, and, and I always thought he was embellishing on everything, and it was all made up and every, sometimes. And then I would check with some old friend of his or whatnot, and they would always back it up. It, he was always had these just amazing life stories. He went to war. He did all these, you know, crazy things in his life. And, and he had just amazing, amazing ways to share that, that with his family. And, and that always really left a mark on me. And it made me, I think, have a big imagination as a songwriter and as a storyteller. And I think that's kind of where I got my craft from for, as a songwriter. And as a, even as a singer is telling these stories that, that he was telling. Well, that's a beautiful thing. That's that's great. You got to spend so much time with him. Yeah, it was. It, and uh, I, I still, to this day, you know, as I have him on the cover of my album. I mean, he he definitely uh, like on one of my in ear monitors that you wear inside your ears, like headphones, before I go on stage. I've got his autograph or his signature engraved into my in ear monitors for my stage. So every night he's on stage with me. It's pretty cool. Brett, you you had a song called Raymond about a guy who works in a nursing home with a patient who has Alzheimer's. Can you talk to me a little bit about where that song came from? That seemed to be kind of a big moment for you. That was my first single, Redmond was, and it was a song I wrote with a guy named Brad Chrysler here in Nashville. I think it was the first time we ever wrote, actually, and I, I just was kind of a shy guy a little bit. and But I stepped in the room, and I was really emotional about my grandmother who had Alzheimer's at the time she was really starting to struggle with it, starting to forget people in the family and really in a, just in a tough place and watching my family go through that and watching her go through that. And somebody that knew me or everything about me her whole life, never missed a birthday call, never, you know, she was, she was everything to me. And I was just tore me up and I, I started to tell Brad about this and he's like, well, I, I sang hymns in nursing homes growing up. And I said, well, that's what I did too. And uh, I used to bring a little boombox thing in nursing homes and sing them hymns or old uh, big band songs or whatever it was. I would go in there and sing. And so we started telling the story about a guy that works in a nursing home. And I worked down at Asbury Hills, minimum wage, but it pays the bills, cleaning floors and leading hymns on Sunday. And so that was the opening line and rang very true to my story in ways and I wanted to find a way to kind of tell the story and make people relate to the fact that, yeah, somebody's going through this tough time and it's really hard to see your family members go through it. And instead of, you know, correcting them and saying, you know, I'm not your son, Raymond, I'm some guy that just works at this nursing home. Instead of saying that you just play that, you play the part that you are, you are Raymond, you know, and you just, you just go with it and you don't need to correct them. 
and because uh, you know they can't help it. And so I think I think it was just a very good way to help me cope with it. Then I learned quickly that it, how many people were going through this similar thing to to me, how many of their families were, and I think it was a really powerful thing to get out there at that moment to get me introduced to the world. Could I beg you to just sing a little bit of it, just the first part? Uh, yeah, uh, I work down at Asbury Hill. Minimum wage, but it pays the bills. Cleaning floors and leading hymns on Sunday. Catherine Davis, room 303. Sweetest soul we ever could meet. I bring her morning coffee every day. She calls me Raymond. She thinks I'm her son. Stay tuned for more Biscuits and Jam. After the break, we'll hear from Kimberly Schlapman, Leanne Womack, John Hyatt, and Scott Abbott. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel & Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. One topic we've hit on with a lot of our guests is how cooking is a language of love. Kimberly Schlapman of the country quartet Little Big Town told me how much the women in her life going back three generations played a part in her own kitchen inspirations and how that same love is now being passed down to her children. All the women in my family were cooks, both of my grandmothers. I lived right next door to one of my grandmothers and then just five minutes away from the other grandmother. And then for a while, I had both of my great-grandmothers who were also incredible cooks. One of my great-grandmothers made 40 biscuits every day because she had eight kids and they worked out in the fields. And so every morning she made 40 biscuits for those <laughs> for those hardworking kiddos. So I'm from a legacy you know, of women who took care of their families by cooking for them and they loved on their families. And that's what my mama taught me, that you love on people. One way to love on people is by cooking for them. And so both of my great grandmothers, my grandmothers and my mama, I I have recipes from all of them. And I'm not a trained chef, especially when I'm talking to you at Southern Living, I have to make that clear. I, I was never trained. I just grew up watching those amazing women in my family take care of the people they love. And I learned a whole lot from them. So you recently posted a picture of your daughter and I think your mom making tea cakes together. And I noticed that you guys were wearing aprons that belonged to your grandmother. Yes. Tell me why that connection is 
so important to you? My grandmothers always wore aprons. That was just something I, I wish we still did that. And sometimes I'll pull out my aprons at home for practicality. If I'm frying, you know, something I don't want to get on my shirt, but also for nostalgia, I can close my eyes and see my grandmothers at the stove in their aprons. And so when my mama decided she was going to teach Daisy how to make tea cakes, she often wears an apron too. So it's not out of the ordinary for her, but she pulled out two, one for her and one for Daisy. And they each had belonged to her mother and tea cakes in our family. When you say tea cake, you can also uh, substitute the word love because it's, it's equal mama's tea cakes are pure love. And so when she grabbed those aprons and she stood at the counter and put daisies on her, um, tears flooded my eyes because that is so much more than just making a cookie so much more. It's a family tradition. It's a memory for me and Daisy. And it's, it's just a way for my mother to love on her grandchild by passing that knowledge along and that picture, I'm going to frame it and put it in my house because it is one of my greatest worldly treasures. Speaking of mothers, Leanne Womack had some great anecdotes about how her 80-year-old mother has become an entrepreneur during the pandemic and how personal gestures and sharing recipes make all the difference. Her pound cake uh, is really famous right here. In fact, the neighbor uh, saw me out on the street the other day and said, hey, can I get your mom's pound cake recipe? <laughs> and I said, yeah, um, I still haven't taken it to her, but um, I got to run that over there. But that's that's famous around here. You have it on one of those old recipe cards? Oh, yeah, definitely. So funny. So funny to say that because when I asked my mom, I said, you know, the neighbor wants your pound cake recipe. And I thought she would just hand me a printout because people are always asking for it. And she went inside and wrote it all down on the cutest little card. <laughs> she is so cute. My mom is so cute, but she did. She wrote it. She's 80 years old. She wrote it out by hand. Um, cause it's sort of like a little gift, you know? Yeah. It just, it means more that way. doesn't I it? I guess so. I get it did. Yeah. I didn't think about it until she handed it to me and, and yeah, it does. And she's a great cook, like I said, and, and she sews a lot. In fact, when this whole thing started, I started a business with her because I told her, I said, you got to stay busy. You got to stay home. So um, we started a, a little gift business and she's been, it has been going crazy and she's been sewing like crazy. Well, she's been making masks, hadn't she? Yep, she has. Yeah. She was making tons of masks and taking them to the hospital and to nurses around here. And we have a nurse that lives next door. And so she has a lot of friends and I think she made about 200 and something masks by herself and delivered those to, to all these places around here. And there's a hospital around here. And finally, um, I started making some cute ones with her. I would go out there and sit with her and, and she taught me to sew when I was a little girl. So I started making some little cute ones that were different. And one looks like the Texas flag and one with Mickey Mouse on it and all these different things. And I just told her, I said, you got to start putting these, you know, on your Etsy site and, and, and it's just, she's been a little busier, I think, than she wanted to be, but it's really cute. We don't, we don't sit around. We're busy people. <laughs> I mean, your mom sounds very cool. I don't know a lot of 80-year-old women who have an Etsy site and are starting a new business. <laughs> I know, I know, right? She is. She's very cool. <laughs> Her mother was that way, and we just, I don't know, that's just the way we were taught to be. In recent years, seven-time Grammy nominee John Hyatt has collaborated with his daughter, Lily, 
who has a successful music career of her own. John spoke to me about what that means to him as a father, as well as being the subject of one of her songs. So tell me what it's been like having a very talented daughter, Lily Hyatt, who is making her own way in the music business. Yeah. Oh, you know, thrilling, exciting. And all three of our kids are just so amazing. And, uh, and one of them happens to be an amazing uh, singer-songwriter, uh, which blows my mind. And she was secretive about it. She spent her time in a room. I gave her a guitar, I think, when she was 12. And uh, we didn't hear from her again until she was 16. And she sang at, at the uh, uh, her high school talent show. She got up and sang Wild Horses and uh, Angel from Montgomery. Mm. And we, we, I mean, you, you couldn't pick our jaws up off the floor. It was like, where, what? This is a, <laughs> she, that's what she's been doing up in her room. You know, so yeah, it was pretty, quite a revelation. You recorded a song of Lily's called uh, All Kinds of People. What, what drew you to that song? I like the fact that she was going to the grocery, you know, in that verse. She just has a way of putting you in a scene. So now, you know, you can see her songs. It's good. And feel them. You know, see them and feel them. And you and Lily both seem to write songs that are that are very personal at times. And she wrote a song about you called Imposter on her album, Trinity yes. Lane. Yes. It's, which is a really powerful song. Tell me, when was the first time you heard that? And what kind of impression did it make on you? She told me about it when she, after she'd recorded it. So I heard her rough and it came out of a conversation. You know, she was a barista at the, this little coffee shop uh, on and off. They had a great relationship where they'd let her go out on the road and then come back and pick it up when she needed the dough. And I was in her coffee shop and we were talking and I was 62 at the time. So it was five years ago because I remember telling her, you know, because we were talking about authenticity and what is that and sometimes we don't feel we neither feel authentic nor even real you know uh, it's like vapor <laughs> or wisps of something and i say you know i felt like an imposter until i was about 62 it took me till i was about 62 to stop feeling like i was faking it like people were gonna you know pull me aside from the stage and go you know what it's you know <laughs> We're, you know, it's we're on to you. Yeah, we're on to you. And find another line of work. And so, yeah, the first time I heard it, I, I, I think I cried. I know I cried. I did cry. He said, I feel like an imposter. Took me to 62. To It's important to remember, especially in the South, that being part of a family doesn't necessarily have to mean being blood relatives. Sometimes family is who you choose to be with. In our final segment today, Scott Avett of the Avett Brothers speaks to that fact, as well as the meaning of fatherhood. Scott, we've been talking about your family a lot. I, I want to fast forward a little bit and, and, and talk about your music family and kind of your, your road family. Tell me a little bit about this this group of people that you travel with now. So 
the beautiful and unique thing about our uh, just about 20 year journey has been that we were never successful enough to grow too fast. And we grew much like a, the, the children that we, <laughs> that we are, um, we grew slow and people came along and into our family, family members joined along the way in real time, uh, naturally, slowly, never in more than like singular additions. It was always plus one, plus one, plus one, because we saw the need and we could identify the person, whether they were the greatest. Um, and, and this is probably where we, we navigating this is tricky. We didn't always hire the, the best. Like, obviously, I'm not the best banjo player in the world, but I'm the banjo player for the Avery Brothers. Uh, it was more about the person. It's always been more about the person. And then the person would grow into the role. And um, I can't say that necessarily about Tanya, Joe, and Mike Marsh, because they're all brilliant musicians. But for Bob, Seth, me, Bonnie, we all have grown into it slowly. And that, I think, is what people have witnessed along the way is us growing. Like, I don't know if it's getting better. It's just uh, us being on the journey. Now, it goes well beyond the band. Uh, we have a whole crew of people that we know and that we love. And they've come along the same way slowly. And uh, it's been so personal and it's so, it's so intimate. And uh, I, can't, I can't imagine it being another way. Kind of like I was talking about art school. Like, I can't imagine putting out a record where we didn't somehow make the album cover. Even if someone else makes it, we're working with them, make it like we're making it. Um, for us, we've crafted this, this family. In a lot of ways, this family has crafted itself. And it's been, it's been beautiful, and it's been a, a, a harbor of love, really. It's a place where when people go, it's carefully thought out. And not many people have, have gone. But when they have, it's been right. And we know that it's right. Nobody's abruptly ever been thrown out. It is just that. It is a family. And really just saying that it's a family and that we love each other is all that needs to be said. You know, I, I think it was, it might have been yesterday or the day before you, you posted a beautiful song on Instagram called A Father's First Spring. Yeah. And there was a lyric in that song that says, uh, I was a child before the day that I met Eleanor, which is your mm -hmm. daughter's name. Yeah. I'm just wondering how has being a father changed you as an artist and a musician? It's a huge blow to the ego, you know, having, having a child, witnessing a child being born, witnessing a partner going through that, witnessing a mother birth a child is such a huge blow to another's ego. And uh, that's a good thing. It's, it's really hard not to only think about yourself, but having children does a, a damn good job at interrupting that. And uh, I'm grateful for that. That's uh, because I, I know that that's really the goal because I'm leaving the, this, this ego. I know that I'm leaving it behind when I, uh, when I pass away. And uh, the more that I can keep my eyes on it and keep it in check, I think the better, the better I am to other people and being good to other people is what being a dad is about. Uh, being good to my brood over here, you know, like that, I got to start there. I always think about wanting to change the world and I'm like, 
then I'm being grumpy or something with my family and I'm going, how can you be, you know, how can you change the world, Scott, if you're not going to treat your family good, you know? So having kids is a good exercise in good advocacy and, and, and good example. It's like, it's like a given opportunity to, well, not given, it takes some hard work, but um, it's such a good opportunity to do that. I love being a dad and I love watching these kids grow. I think they're going to be great, great men and women. I think that's exciting. Thanks for listening to our special family edition of Biscuits and Jam. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. Join me back here next week for a brand new episode of Biscuits and Jam. <laughs>